Hello, and welcome to the Aguilar Conversations, a global perspective. On today's podcast, once again, armed conflict has broken out in the Middle East as a result of the October 7th attack by Hamas on Israel by firing over 2,000 missiles into Israel. Israel has reacted with a bombing campaign in Gaza and has promised to eradicate Hamas, who have been accused of committing acts of terrorism. Thus far, thousands of Israelis and Palestinians have been killed and wounded, and over 100 people have been taken hostage by Hamas. And the United States has sent the USS Gerald R. Ford, the world's largest warship, to the region. How will this conflict end? Next. Associate Professor of International Affairs for the New School in New York City. Dr. Hoffman's scholarship has appeared in various academic journals and books, and his most recent book is Humanitarianism, War and Politics, Solferino to Syria and Beyond. Dr. Hoffman has been a consultant for the Fund for Peace, the National Committee on American Foreign Policy, the Stanley Foundation, and the Open Society Foundation. Dr. Hoffman is also a research fellow at the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Dr. Hoffman, thanks for joining me today. Dr. Hoffman, let me ask you this. So we all know what's going on in the Middle East right now, but there's also been different levels of response to the war between Israel and Hamas. On the governmental side, in terms of the West, has been uh, support. Uh, Secretary Austin is in Israel right now. Uh, Secretary Blinken has been there. But there's also been other responses that have been probably tepid. The corporate community has not been as vocal uh, in the academic world. Uh, it seems to be more towards being anti-Israel. And it seems to be these different levels of response to what's going on now. How do you... How do you explain the difference in responses to what's going on in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas right now? Well, I think uh, this is clearly a very delicate and fragile moment to be talking about uh, the situation there. Um, uh, the characterization that you had of it as a war, I would be perhaps a little bit more nuanced in referring to this as an asymmetric armed conflict with fourth generation warfare features to it. And I can explain why I think that's a crucial uh, distinction because how you define the problem says something about the solutions that you'll pursue. But let me uh, come back to your, your question though about uh, why there has been such tentative, uh, tepid responses you've characterized them. Uh, I think there is a lot of people holding their breath, uh, hoping that this is a uh, a momentary surge in violence. I think this is of a far different magnitude than anything we've seen in quite some time in this conflict. Um, I think there is also a lot of wedge politics playing out. Uh, I think at the global level, uh, let me start with that and work my way down. Uh, Russia, Putin himself has really figured out that this is a powerful wedge in the Western alliance. Um, 
and is really hammering it. Uh, we're seeing also a real uh, tentative um, shrug, I would say, right now from China. China is clearly a, a major player in all of this. They get a lot of oil out of the Middle East. Um, some of the regional powers also as well, Turkey, Qatar, um, they have been previous um, supporters of Hamas, but uh, they also have uh, interactions with uh, the state of Israel. Um, some of it involves security cooperation, counterterrorism cooperation. And uh, I think there's basically everyone is waiting to see what happens more profoundly to understand what position to take because there is a there's just tremendous shock right now. Uh, whether or not universities or corporations, I imagine uh, many people will um, sort of, this will sort of reiterate to them that this is an intractable problem and that they don't wanna get involved with it because that will sour relations with one side or the other. Uh, as this proceeds, we will see much more concretely how alliances are shaping and unfolding. Uh, there's clearly uh, going to be some massive implications uh, for the next turn of events, whether it's Israel pursuing a uh, land invasion, I think that's quite likely. It's also quite likely the case that you're going to see um, how other actors in the region uh, respond to that, whether or not it will be diplomacy or uh, encouraging it with um, more resources to each of the belligerent sides. Uh, you know, right now, the only actor that I see sort of, I guess, winning or coming out of this in some way uh, in a positive light, unfortunately, is the arms contractors who are very happy to um, escalate and see this uh, inflammation expand. Uh, I wish I had a clearer sense right now of who will take which position. Uh, it's clear, I think, within the UN itself, uh, which is suffering from its own crisis of multilateralism under a new condition of multipolarity, is really making the organization deadlocked, handicapped in any way of responding. There are UN uh, operations on the ground, various UN peacekeeping uh, components I can go through. There's also the UN humanitarian footprint through the UN Relief and Works Agency, which is in the southern part of Gaza now. Um, but these are very much modest conflict management tools that have been unsuccessful when we really need to talk about large-scale resolution and reconciliation. Uh, staying with that for a moment, um, but there is you know, there is temporary response. And, and, you know, as you were saying, they're waiting to see what's going to happen. But there are some groups, for example, you know, across the country, youth groups, uh, particularly on campuses, have been very clear about where they stand. And usually it, it's a anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian response. Uh, Harvard University, I think 30 organizations just came out uh, in terms of supporting Palestinians. But I guess I want to make kind of a if we can separate out, because what we have right now is Hamas, which is a terrorist organization, and their actions over the weekend is barbaric. I mean, let's just be real about that. But there does not seem to be the kind of narrative or kind of language that can best encapsulate exactly what the entire problem is, where people can look at this in a holistic way 
instead of in just a binary way that it's either that or this. I mean, Hamas attack, that's one thing. And that has to be set to the side for a moment, as egregious as it is, if you're going to talk about the whole issue of Palestine, Israel. So how do you create that dialogue and that language that allows people to to talk about this in more holistic terms? Well, uh, that is, a, I think, a major challenge you've identified. Uh, the holistic question really becomes much more clear in a review of the history of this conflict. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think, uh, you know, uh, you said, you know, we have to set aside the Hamas mass atrocities for a moment to understand the backdrop of Israel and um, what many people refer to as settler colonialism in this regard. Um, I mean, those are two conversations that often have you know, been in different worlds or not connected. I think right now, um, the thing that is common that I think I would encourage everybody to understand is the victimization that is taking place of the Palestinians by uh, numerous parties that have manipulated them. Uh, I think uh, what has been done to them, I think it was Edward Said who famously said that they are the victims of the victims, meaning that the uh, generation of uh, that founded Israel engaged in a, you know, a displacement uh, that situated the Palestinians in a different position. I would add to that the Arab states, I think, have been very irresponsible in how they have uh, treated uh, the Palestinians. Right now, Hamas's strategy of provocation, uh, which is what terrorist organizations do, they're looking for political reaction. There's a lot of blowback right now. And um, in terms of how Palestinian civilians are being impacted upon this. Uh, what can the youth really do to understand the larger context of it? Of course, you need to be educated about um, how there are rival claims to this area. Um, that is one way of thinking about it. But if you think of these, if you strip away these political identities, these religious identities, you realize that there's a large number of people who did not really sign up for this conflict. And that's not just true of the Palestinians, that's also true of a number of Israelis. Um, I think within the Israeli polity, there's also a major divide about how to move forward. As we saw with Netanyahu pursuing the judicial reforms, a large number of people did not wanna to continue to participate in supporting um, the Israeli military by doing their service because they felt that he was turning the state into an authoritarian system. And um, as a result, I see younger generations of both Palestinian and Israeli have enormous amount of fatigue, if not a form of PTSD in some ways, that they have been uh, brought into this conflict in ways that they didn't uh, you know, intend. And it's that younger generation that is going to actually make peace. Now, they have other drivers that they are sensitive to beyond these longstanding political grievances including among them climate and environment. Uh, the Jordan River uh, is a very, very fragile water system. Uh, there's, I think hydrologists have looked at this and said, well, this system can really only support about a million people sustainably. And you have you know, over 10 million people really relying on it for water. You're gonna have a scenario that ultimately boils down to you know, two men fighting over the last glass of water when they should be working together to gather the rain and figure out how to dig a new well. The younger generation doesn't want that. The younger generation recognizes that there are common agendas in environment, um, appreciation of world cultural heritage, 
And they're the ones who are going to make the change because there is such exhaustion with the poor leadership we have seen on parties all, all across this conflict. I'm sticking with that for a moment because, you know, as we were saying before we, we started recording, um, I was at a conference last night and we were talking about this particular issue. Um, and we were talking about what good can possibly come out of this. Because as you've just said, there are a lot of people who are simply tired. They're exhausted from this whole thing. And I would say, and I would def definitely agree with you, that on both sides, both in Israel and within the Palestinian community, the majority of people just want to have peace. They want to live their lives. And can something out of this tragedy happen that can make something like that possible? For example, whether it's the two-state solution or whatever it may be, do you think something positive can ultimately happen as a result of this tragedy? Um, I mean, one of the sort of, um, I think, misconceptions about this conflict is that the breakthrough is going to happen between the Palestinians and the Israelis. That may eventually happen. But within each one of these respective polities, there's major changes that need to take place in terms of leadership, credibility building. And, you know, maybe uh, some of the, within Israel, the security failure that didn't anticipate this, as well as the sort of machinations politically by Netanyahu about these judicial reforms, that may mobilize um, some change within uh, the Israeli polity to revisit um, how to reckon build reconciliation with the Palestinians. Similarly, within the Palestinians, I think um, there, it's not clear what the effective leadership going forward is because none of the leaders have developed, uh, have fulfilled their promises to the Palestinian civilians uh, about development, prosperity, security. Hamas uh, has been in charge of Gaza since 2006, 2007 period. There haven't been elections since then. Um, so it's really hard to gauge um, this. But what we do know, and this is true of all conflicts historically, is that there are always these spoiler elements where they have vested interest in continuing the conflict. You know, part of the internet age, I'm afraid to say, is it, it rewards the type of performativity, right, where you need to take the most extreme stance possible so you get the most clicks and the clicks lead to money and et cetera and so forth. So even if that is not really what the mainstream wants, that is where the rewards are politically as well as economically. And so what we need is we need changes within both the Israel polity and the Palestinian polity before we can have that big breakthrough between these two polities. It's the youth. That's really where we need to focus on. And I think education, sort of inter, uh, inter you know, cultural dialogues, um, it's very, very strong among these younger populations because they've had it. Uh, they're fed up with the war, but they're fed up with the older generation that have made promises that have failed. In sticking with that, uh, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu can survive after mm -hmm. this. In fact, some are saying he, he will survive as long as the war continues, but that after the war is over or the conflict is over, uh, Netanyahu his career is over in terms of being prime minister. Do you agree with that assessment? Um, well, I'll give you uh, two views on it. One is my uh, sort of scholarly interpretation. Yes, I think that's likely the case because 
um, he will attempt to militarize and securitize. He's going to start to appoint people into positions that will, you know, allow him to have a free hand. But um, we have seen in the past that these types of leaders are ousted. Uh, it is my personal view that, yes, he will be eventually uh, put out of power because it will be recognized that the authoritarian methods may not have caused this particular episode, but they certainly created a vulnerability that was not uh, expected. Um, and if I can go back to you raised the sort of two state uh, model uh, as a way of moving forward. I think, you know, for a while that seemed to be uh, much more likely. Uh, what I think is also the case though, is how the two state model has been developed is unviable because the Palestinians, it's not just that they have two non-contiguous territories, but the resources they have at their disposal, including water, which I think is really significant. I mean, that's part of why Israel occupies the Golan Heights and why it drains aquifers in the West Bank. It's to feed you know, agriculture and all of that. The territories, how they have been set up for Palestine could not be viable states. Um, so the two-state solution is a conflict management solution. It is not a way to solve this in the long run. The problem that Israel faces is that you can be a Jewish state or you can be a democratic state, but you can't be a Jewish democratic state with the demographics that we have. Uh, the Jewish population would be a minority. So what can we do? There needs to be some type of other governance model put forward. I think there's much more likely, as in terms of a durable solution, as some type of confederation, where you have people who are allowed to move wherever they want. Uh, it's not necessarily the full so-called right of return. People wouldn't necessarily be citizens, but they would be residents. Maybe you're a citizen of the Palestinian state, but you could live in what are the Israeli territories. Or we have some type of hybrid governance. Um, I, you know, it's interesting when you look at some of the maps of this area when it was a, you know, under the Ottoman Empire and then the British Empire and then sort of post-World War I and post-World War II proposals for settlements, there was always sort of defined international territories where you would have the governance of Jerusalem by some international force. And it would be a huge investment by the world organization to make such a, uh, you know, set this up. But it's time to revisit these ideas because um, there needs to be vast demilitarization and de-escalation in order to have a process of reconciliation. It would probably also involve some type of truth and reconciliation commission, similar to what South Africa has had in the past, in order to really build that durable peace. Until you have those parameters in place, we're all just sort of tinkering at the edges and the next cycle of conflict will reemerge, I'm afraid. With that, sticking with that, the Abraham Accords under mm -hmm. the previous administration, uh, the ongoing negotiations now between the United States and Saudi Arabia and Israel, is that something that can lead to what you laid out as a potential vision? Because if you can get rid, if you can get rid of those conflicts and those hostilities, that obviously makes nations like Iran more perhaps, not necessarily, but perhaps more irrelevant in terms of, of the hostilities. Uh, would you agree with that? Well, I think those are building blocks. Uh, you need to you know, see if we can attempt to make a peace at that level. 
But again, the voice that's not coming through is the Palestinian voice, because uh, I think um, I think there's a lot of states who have other interests in this. Uh, you look at Egypt. I think Egypt will play a central role in all of this, um, not just because they govern the Rafa uh, border uh, with Gaza, but Egypt has credibility uh, among the Palestinians as a negotiating partner. Now, uh, Sisi himself has been sympathetic to Israel on some level and has certain common security interests, but he understands that within Egypt, there's a lot of popular support for the Palestinian cause. I don't know that many of the Arab states, when, you know, when Israel was first established, the Arab, surrounding Arab states did not take in Palestinian populations. They saw them as a chip to use against Israel, right? They wanted the war to continue to slowly drain and keep that conflict going. So they don't necessarily have the most credibility. Jordan itself has a very uh, fraught relationship. Historically, we know at one point the PLO tried to overthrow Jordan in the 70s, uh, the government there, and they have a large Palestinian refugee population there, Lebanon as well. Um, we need to find credible leadership among the Palestinians. Uh, I think, yes, it would be great to have the Arab states at the table, particularly because they could provide some of the financial resources and reassurances for that. But just them alone is not going to be enough to resolve this matter. So given this, I want to switch the conversation a little bit towards what's happening on the ground, because from a governmental perspective in the West, there's a lot of sympathy now and they're standing with Israel. But President Biden has also said, and he made it very clear, and I think Secretary Austin also made it clear this morning, uh, saying to Israeli leadership, uh, remember the the laws of war or the rules of war. And it seems as though certain things can happen because this attack on Israel has been defined as it's 911. Well, one of the lessons of 911, which I'm sure you you know, is that you can go too far. So, yes, there was an appetite for attacking somebody here in the United States. And there was there was that appetite, that that raw uh, appetite to get somebody. We went into Iraq. We got rid of the government, but we stayed. And then we went to Afghanistan and it became two debacles. Is there um a chance that Israel might go too far, which would turn many governments not against them, but their support will become more tepid, which will play into the hands of Hamas, of Iran, and other nations, Hezbollah, for example. Is that a possibility? Uh, absolutely. I think we're right actually on the cusp of just that. I mean, in terms of violations of international humanitarian law, um, I mean, historically, of course, uh, the occupation uh, of these territories, um, Israel has certain responsibilities that it has not lived up to. Um, the settlements themselves are violations of it. What Hamas has done was a mass atrocity. There's no doubt that it's a violation of international humanitarian law. Um, but this sort of extreme response that you are suggesting, I think, is unfortunately quite likely. Um, it's going to... There is this notion of retribution, uh, I think, that the Israelis um, unfortunately are looking towards. And that's part of why a lot of countries are holding their breath. Will it alienate sufficient populations? This is a, there's already a lot of baked in opinions about this 
uh, issue, the Israel-Palestine one. So I don't know if that much will change uh, regarding the big picture, but that's really Hamas's aim with uh, this sort of provocation is they want to provoke a extreme reaction the way Al-Qaeda did with 9-11. And it serves them well in a political fashion. Uh, it's unfortunate that people are rewarded for these types of uh, abuses. Um, Israel, uh, you know, having these accords, the Abraham Accords and uh, treaty with uh, Jordan, Egypt, et cetera, uh, these things will remain, I think, durable in the sense that uh, there are common security interests in the region. They Nobody wants to see more external powers or a greater escalation of it. But um, yeah, this is um, something that may also uh, fall back upon um, Israel itself. Because when I mentioned at the outset that this is an asymmetric conflict, the asymmetry is not just in power. The asymmetry is also in interest in the sense that uh, the democratic elements within Israel are aghast at whether or not this will go too far, uh, that Netanyahu will use his mandate to respond to embark upon a transformation of the state and uh, all of that. So there are people pushing back, I think, on that exact concern, not just externally, but also internally. So let me go back for a moment when you talk about Israel being a Jewish state or a democratic state, but it can't be a Jewish democratic state, could you go deeper into that? Because the, the notion that Israel was, was founded as a Jewish state, and it does have uh, democratic tendencies in terms of elections, and some of the norms that we associate with being a democracy. So why can't you be a Jewish democratic state? Because well, you do have, remember, there, there are nations that are, um, th that have a certain religion that is the official religion, but that does not mean that other people can't be a viable part of, of the nation. So why can't you have the two? Well, you, you could have a viable country uh, in the sense that people could survive. But if we ascribe to democracy a set of human rights, political rights to participate, civil rights, protection of individuals, those things are denied to most Palestinians who live within Israel proper. And the way that the demographics are shaping up, Israel, uh, the Jewish population, if we had this sort of greater Israel, right? where it included all, you know, the West Bank and Gaza and all this. And we said, well, what is this, the, the structure, the political structure of this entity? If it was a full democracy, the Palestinians would have a significant role in parliament and such. They don't have that. Um, now, there, this is, there's, this is uh, for a historical reason that we, what we know about the founding of Israel. If you designed it, uh, as I said, more along the lines of a confederation where there were areas where uh, Palestinians actually had their rights protected and, uh, you know, they, they had a certain body of rights that were protected throughout the greater Israel, but they were citizens that actually voted within these territories within it. That would change the calculus. That would change what it means to be a democracy. That would be a, an improvement for many of the Palestinians who are traditionally marginalized. Now, 
the Jewish population would always have certain, you know, uh, rights and, uh, you know, within the, in the state. Nobody is looking to strip that, I think, away because they are clearly a sizable population and they, you know, are, des are deserving of rights. But the Palestinians, too, are deserving of rights. And until you can reconcile that, um, it is a flawed democracy. It is a limited democracy. I want to turn for a moment, because we, we had started in terms of responses and the like, and how to create kind of a common language. And I want to talk about it from the perspective, and I know this may not be your, your ballet week, it's not necessarily mine, but I have heard it. In terms of the religious aspect of, of this conflict, and you hear a lot now about, you know, biblical theology, and this is this is what the Bible says and all this stuff. A lot of it is just, it's just crazy talk. But my question to you is, how do we get those folks, uh, you know, you take three great religions, to come up with kind of a common language, particularly when it comes to this, this particular conflict? I mean, how does that happen? And do you think it should happen? Well, I think, you know, uh... There has always been a, an, an idea that somehow these religions are intrinsically opposed to each other and all of that. I think that is um, something that a lot of spoilers invoke in order to agitate. But I mean, when you look at uh, the actual, you know, how the religion is structured, I mean, um, I'm not a scholar of Islam, but I know that they say, well, you know, these were all the different prophets. They include Moses in there, they include Jesus in there, and they include Muhammad in there. I mean, there are certain commonalities between these and religion, like culture, is not stagnant. It is not static. It can evolve and it can grow. And there are faiths out there that demonstrate this. The Baha'i faith, for instance, also is very integrative of uh, this. So when you look at the roots of Judeo-Christian and Islam, there are certain values that they have about charity. There are certain values about how you treat the other, you know, the stranger. Um, and you could build on this. I mean, there's a reason why in this territory, these religions have, you know, grown up together. And they also have coexisted in many periods of history without violence. Um, you know, when it was governed by the Ottomans, yeah, it wasn't the best. Of course, this was another external imperial power. But both uh, Christian and Muslim populations and, and uh, Jewish populations, they all lived together. Um, for a long time without periods of intense violence. There have been, unfortunately, a lot of uh, opportunists who've, you know, benefited from uh, antagonizing and uh, fostering this. So I think the principles are there, the values are there. Um, it's a question of getting the actors on the same page. And this is why I say the younger generation and their exhaustion is probably one of the central drivers of this. I see a lot of intercultural exchanges, educational exchanges between universities within Palestinian and Israeli communities. They have a common experience of war and trauma. Um, and so sadly, uh, those are common unifying elements that maybe give a brighter future to both. In the minutes we have left, um, you've been involved with the UN. Yes. Um, the UN has been unable to get a condemnation of the actions of Hamas. And that's, and some people point to that as saying that is because the UN, quite frankly, is a powerless organization. And many people say, you know, is it time to move on 
from institutions such as the United Nations. What's your take on that? I mean, even though they do have some things on the ground right now in terms of from a humanitarian perspective, but what's your viewpoint of the UN and its role within this conflict? Okay, well, um, I think the first thing everyone needs to understand about the United Nations is that it is not the architect of order, it is the custodian to chaos. That much of what it does is triage and clean up. And that these types of disputes are sort of beyond its capability because it's just not designed to that for that. When it was built, it was designed to prevent World War III. Now you can make the case that it's not succeeding right now with what's transpiring in Ukraine. That's absolutely the argument. But what's that shown is that there's a structural dilemma here about do you keep the great powers in the club or do you boot someone out and then say, oh, you know, you admonish them for it. Now, this was tried during the League of Nations. They kicked, you know, Germany and Italy and Japan all left because of aggression. What happened? That didn't save the organization. It just descended into further irrelevance. So it's going to be the platform. It's not perfect by any means. Um, the divisions that I mentioned earlier about how Russia understands that this is a wedge issue among the West, they are certainly going to drive that home. The UN, uh, as its composition has changed, as more decolonization has happened and you have more states from what we now call the global south populated, they have that history of occupation, imperialism, colonialism. So they're very sympathetic, obviously, to the Palestinian point of view. But if you've looked at historically what's taken place in the UN, there have certainly been windows where there have been anti-Israel, but then there have been also pro-Israel. In 1975 was a General Assembly resolution saying Zionism equals racism. But in 1991, they revoked that resolution. Um, when, um, you know, the more recent provocative aspects about the U.S. recognizing, uh, you know, move, under Trump moving the, um, recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, everyone saw that as a very provocative aspect. And so within the UN, there was a lot of uh, castigation of the US doing that. Does that mean that they're anti-Israel or does that mean that they're trying to set the terms for a credible negotiation with dignity for both parties? You can make the case that it's really the latter. Um, the UN is really just trying triage here. Uh, you have the three UN peace operations on the ground. Um, one is in uh, Lebanon. Uh, that's the biggest one. Uh, there is one in the Golan Heights. There's also a smaller one in the West Bank. And these are really just trying to stem the conflict from escalating further. It's the UN Reliefs and uh, Works Agency that provides humanitarian aid for the Palestinians that is really keeping, has been keeping the lid on the conflict for a very long time until the UN is actually given the authority to pursue reconciliation no, the UN won't do anything. And the reason for that is the deadlock among the permanent five members of the Security Council, the US, Russia, China, Britain, and France. Until you get all five of them together, the UN really isn't gonna fundamentally change the equation. In, in regards to that, for, for this conflict, for example, because as you just said, uh, any of the members will have a veto power over what's gonna happen. So who can emerge out of this conflict as a potential mediator, a mitigating factor? Is it Qatar? Is it, I mean, who could it possibly be? I mean, the global dynamics are shifting. I don't know where China would be in, in a situation like this, but who could arise? 
as mm -hmm. a mediator in this? Um, well, you know, China, I, I will say, um, you know, because they get a large amount of oil out of the Middle East, they don't want to see the conflict spread uh, to them. Uh, the Middle East is really a place of economic achievement. Uh, so I don't know that they are that heavily invested in it. But um, the two countries that I think have the probably the greatest potential to play mediating roles are Egypt because of the political dynamics within Egypt, uh, support for it. They also have sort of a, uh, a pressure release by, uh, you know, their proximity. Um, Turkey is another one. Uh, I think Erdogan has in some ways um, perhaps uh, shown that he's more of a supporter of Hamas. So I don't know that the Israelis completely trust him. At the same time, Turkey and Israel have signed uh, basically cooperation on things in the Eastern Mediterranean on security. So there may be some potential there. I think Egypt holds the most uh, likelihood for this. Um, the US is probably not seen as a credible uh, interlocutor at the moment, given particularly what happened during the Trump years and how you know statements have been playing out. Uh, is there some other regional actor to emerge? Um, I don't see that quite likely. I think uh, the UN actually could play more of an, uh, a role in this but um, it doesn't have the capacity and there isn't the political will there yet, unfortunately. This is not a ripe for resolution moment, I'm afraid. It seems to be, and I would agree with that. In, in your mind, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about why now in terms of this attack on Israel. What's your sense of that? I mean, some people say it's because of these Saudi negotiations. But then you hear that this has been in the works for about two years. Um, so what's your sense of why now? And also, how do you think this is going to play out ultimately? I mean, where are we 12 months from now? Well, uh, the why now question, let me start with that one. I think, um, you know, a lot of the Palestinian issue has been that they are forgotten. They're overlooked. And those who vie for leadership among the Palestinians want to show the relevance by being in the news to be out front, uh, whether it's Hezbollah or Hamas or Fatah. And uh, there's been a lot of quiet on that front. Hamas has wanted to demonstrate, or they feel that they are the, you know, the most authentic voice of Palestinian resistance. And so the way that the, the strategic doctrine of Israel has worked for many years now is unfortunately something that goes by the name as mow the lawn, right? You have to routinely go in and intervene and get rid of the enemy and then you withdraw and, you know, the, the lawn grows back and then you mow it again. And it's a very dehumanizing way of thinking about it. But they realize that that's sort of a management practice. Hamas on its side of it realizes that there's a cycle to this. And also similarly wants to demonstrate their relevance periodically. Israel has been so preoccupied with the judicial review, uh, review aspects that uh, reform issues that Netanyahu was doing, they kind of lost the focus. They were maybe more focused on what was maybe taking place in the West Bank or Syria issues because of that ongoing conflict. They haven't been talking much about Gaza. So maybe Hezbollah saw an opportunity in that distraction um, I think similarly, 
you know, the sort of rivalries that take place within the Israeli or within the Palestinian polity between Hezbollah, Fatah, and Hamas. Hamas also said this is a moment where we need to galvanize support for us um, because they don't hold elections. So this is another way of rallying people to the Hamas cause. So I think this sort of window, um, there's been a lot of focus also on Ukraine that has absorbed a lot of oxygen. This is another way to say this conflict hasn't disappeared. So this, I think, has a lot to do with why not. Where are we in 12 months? Um, that's very hard to say because it's going to depend on the magnitude of the Israel intervention within the Gaza. Uh, I don't think this will be like, you know, Operation Cast Lead or any of the other recent, uh, you know, sparks or surges between violence in Israel and Palestine. I think this is much more enduring. Um, you know, I, I said that the Israeli doctrine was, uh, you know, mow the lawn. I think now uh, it's become salt the earth, I'm afraid. Uh, they're really going to go in there and they're going to root out militants. It's going to cause tremendous amount of devastation for Palestinian civilians. And it's going to squeeze them between them and Egypt. And this is why I think Egypt will play a role. So where are we in 12 months? Um, I'm afraid that uh, we're not, we are not, if Israel has not felt it has achieved its level of retribution, we will still be in that painful moment of, uh, of violence. What my strong hope is, is that um, smarter, uh, more humane heads prevail. Egypt, uh, along with pressure from Israel's allies, including the United States and Europe, along with uh, Arab support in the, for Palestinians, recognizes we need to de-escalate and that there is some sort of um, bargain, you know, negotiations going on. We could be in a moment of negotiation 12 months, but that may still be too soon. This is still a very raw moment. Do you think Iran and Hezbollah will get involved in this? Um, I think Iran recognizes that this is a very low cost way of them to provoke the Israelis to look bad and for the US to expend interest. I don't believe that the Iranians are gonna start sending troops to fight in this war. Is, Iran is very successful in using proxy forces. They do it in Lebanon, they do it in Syria, they do it now, uh, clearly. Um, they may not have even been fully aware of what Hamas was doing, but this is a very low cost way for them to get what they want. What Iran maybe ultimately wants is normalization from their relationships with the West and engage in trade. I don't believe that they are in their hearts as committed to the Palestinian cause as they are to their own national interest of normalizing relations. They see this as a political chip more than they're gonna give up so much to um, sacrifice for this cause. And they're doing it in a very low cost way. So um, I don't think Iran will further escalate this. Yesterday has been Dr. Peter Hoffman, Associate Professor for International Affairs at the New School in New York City. And I wanna thank you for joining me today, Dr. Hoffman. Thank you. And uh, my prayers for everyone involved in this conflict. Let's not dehumanize these people and not just talk about numbers. These are real people really suffering. Thank you, Mr. Aguilar. We would both agree on that, definitely. And thank you for joining us today. And join us again next week as we discuss another issue of global importance here on the Aguilar Conversations, A Global Perspective.
Conversations, a global perspective, is produced by Casa Margo Communications Group.